Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is August the 23rd, or Wednesday, 2023, late summer in California. Um, I don't know how many shows we've done, but we seem to have covered everything. We've already covered Mill Towns. We did a great show back in 2020 with my old friend Kerry Arsenault. Um, she's written a, a book about a declining Mill Town um, in Maine. Uh, Mill Town, Reckoning with What Remains. It's a prize-winning book. It's about um, a town called Mexico uh, in Maine, which was incorporated in 1818, more than 200 years ago. We are back with mill towns, but not contemporary ones, historical ones. Uh, my guest today is Bruce Dorsey. He teaches history at Swarthmore College, just outside uh, Philadelphia. And he has a new book out, Murder in a Mill Town, Sex, Faith, and the Crime that Captivated a Nation. America always seems to be captivated by crime. Uh, I'm sure it wasn't the first murder that America was captivated with. It certainly wasn't the last one. Uh, Bruce is uh, talking to us from uh, Swarthmore College in uh, Pennsylvania, just outside Philadelphia. Uh, Bruce, um, this mill town, tell us a little bit more about the town itself. Which What was the name of the town? Well, the... Um, death happens outside of the town of Fall River, Massachusetts, um, but it, it actually wasn't. Um, it wasn't. Uh, yeah, so we got Fall River in uh, Bristol County, Massachusetts. Right, but um, sitting right outside of that, along the state line in the uh, state of Rhode Island, was the town of farming town of Tiverton, Rhode Island. Um, and a farmer one day, in a cold day in December of 1832, walked out of his farm and. Um, was taking his um, team of horses down towards the river and stumbled upon a woman's body hanging from a stake near the haystacks at his farm. Um, and that set off this, um, this particular um, crime and scandal and trial that, uh, that I tell in this story. And the name of that woman was a certain Sarah Maria Cornell. Tell me about her. Yes, for, um, she, for most of her life, uh, she goes by Maria Cornell, so I'll refer to her as Maria or Cornell. But um, an interesting part of the story is she does change her name a number of times in her short um, adult life, um, partly to disguise who she is um, as she's moving around mill towns. But um, her story is a cent centerpiece of this of this particular case, um, although by the time everyone discovers her and finds out about her, she's dead. Um, and the trial oftentimes is about her. Um, she doesn't get to tell her story in a courtroom, uh, but at the same time, um, her story is a fascinating one. Um, she becomes the equivalent of the most notorious, um, they called them factory girls at that time, to call of uh, a young woman who was working in the cotton mills of the textile industries when the age of industrialization was beginning in New England in the early 1800s. And, uh, she eventually becomes the most notorious of those, but ironically, she was the granddaughter of one of the pioneer manufacturers in, a, in America. Um, so she, because her 
parents um, maybe made some bad choices in in their marriage. Their um, marriage disintegrated. Um, the father, her father, deserted and abandoned the family. She eventually uh, needs to survive on wage work to uh, to make her way, and she begins to work in the factories of New England and makes her way through about a dozen different factory towns until her death 10 years after she starts. So that must have been, uh, especially for a young woman without any means, it must have been a pretty tough life, Bruce, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. It was a combination of, um, I sometimes like to talk about it as uh, both opportunities and vulnerabilities, um, uh, because it was both. Um, For her, it was an opportunity for an independent life, some measure of autonomy, some control over her life, some sense that she um, had a place for herself and a means of finding some some way. And that's what the new level of wage work that was available for women. We oftentimes lose sight of the fact that um, the industrial capitalist economy in, uh, in the United States was built upon the wage labor of young women. Um, and she was one of those. Um, she was both atypical sometimes, but typical of many. And what would these young women mostly do in these sort of proto factories? Would they yeah. be on a, some sort of assembly line? Yes. No, it wasn't really necessarily an assembly line, but somewhat. They had to maintain and monitor certain machines that were um, happening. So the first of those mills were essentially just turning raw cotton, balls of cotton, eventually into yarn. Um, and and uh, didn't take very much skill. All one had to do was make sure you tied the knot when the yarn broke upon the spinning machine. So if you could tie a knot, you could do the work. So the young children and girls were doing this. But as it advanced and became more involved in it, they replaced the weaving of yarn so that it became cloth um, by more powerful machines called power loom weavers. So the um, machines were weaving cloth. And that was a more skilled and dangerous dangerous work. So uh, Maria was a weaver, the most skilled work, but she was operating about four different power. So she had a skill. She, she, she yeah. And that's allowed her to go from factory to yes. factory. It's of course, you don't need me to tell you this, Bruce, as a historian of pre-Civil War America, it's not possible to talk about this period without reference to slavery and the cotton industry. How did this mill town economy Eco ecosystem in in New England. How did it tie in with slavery and the, the broader the broader cotton industry? Yeah, that is a great question, and and um, and Maria's story intersects with that, even if she wasn't always fully conscious of what um, what that connection might have been. But the vast majority of the almost all the cotton that arrived in the front gate of a of a large mill. Uh, complex. And she worked in Lowell, Massachusetts, the premier industrial city. Um, yeah, that's the quintessential yes. industrial place. That's now, she, of course, in massive decline, Lowell. Yes. And that's where she met the Reverend Avery. But um, that cotton was all coming from the plantations of the Deep South, where they were. Um, people were on the move, moving into the western areas of um, of Mississippi, Louisiana, even in towards Texas, growing, growing cotton that was then um, transported to New Orleans and then up uh, up the Atlantic to uh, to Boston um, area ports. Uh, but at the same time, the finished cloth, much of it, um, especially the rough cloth, was then returned back and sold to be the cheap clothing for, for slaves. Um, they didn't clothe them very well, but that, that was what they um, 
And I assume that the workers in these mills would have been exclusively white. Um, yes. And there were um, free African-American laborers who were probably would have been willing to have the opportunities and the good wages that were possible, but they were uh, systematically, um, not legally, but um, systematically rejected from, from that. So you, uh, you noted the second character in this drama, a man called um, Ephraim Kingsbury Avery. Tell me about him and how he fits into the narrative. Yeah, Ephraim Avery... Um, was a evangelical preacher at the time period when the um, evangelical religion, Protestant religion was um, rising to the forefront of its um, popularity and power in the early 19th century. He was uh, belonged to the Methodist uh, sect and the Methodist church was the fastest growing church uh, in the United States. Um, so he has a background in which he comes from the same kind of background as, um, as Maria Cornell, um, rural Connecticut, not very much, not great means. His father was a tenant farmer. He could see that his future would be one in which there would be no ownership of land, no possibility for any sort of possibility of upward mobility. But there was one place that was offered for a person, um, perhaps a chance to rise in the professions if they could show their skills, and that was to be a, a preacher. Um, it didn't require it among the Methodists that he went to a university or attended a seminary, as long as he showed that he had the sort of true faith. And these people were all, I mean, were they third, fourth generation American? Um, in most cases, in these cases, yes. They were, um, uh, Avery's family goes back to the um, the 17th century. Um, and, and the same is true for the um, Cornell's family, which is the Leffingwell family of Connecticut. Yeah. So how did Cornell and Avery know one another? Well, they seem to be operating in the same orbit of, of moving from one factory town to another. So, um, so Avery was a traveling minister, a circuit rider, as yeah. they call it. So they were all both sort of itinerants, early example yeah. of the precariat. Yes. And um, but for all evidence, it doesn't indicate that they ever sort of exactly ran into each other. It's possible they could have been at the same large scale meetings that I can talk more about called camp meetings. But there were thousands there and they may not have run across each but other. But are we sure that they they were associated? Oh, they were definitely associated because it happens in the town of Lowell, Massachusetts. Um, Maria had moved to Lowell. She had finally realized that that was the place with the best work, the best job opportunities and wages um, that were being offered. Lowell was at its peak um, of its rise. And Avery was given a plum assignment of being the minister, Methodist minister in Lowell a year after Maria was there. So he was the minister of her church. Um, people assumed, told stories after the trial about maybe there was some romantic involvement with them. There's no evidence that was the case. Instead, it was more of a contested relationship. He was the minister who came in trying to kind of um, right the ship and make sure everything was in proper order. And to do so, he needed to discipline those wayward uh, members. And he heard a rumor that this young woman in his congregation was having sex with men um, in town. And um, he brought the case that ended up um, excommunicating her from the church. Um, and when this happens, it sets off a crisis in Maria's life in which she has to go and... Um, she starts telling and confessing her story to everyone who will hear her. She needs their forgiveness to get back into the church. But she also writes some fairly explicit letters of confession to Avery. Um, 
And uh, he holds on to these. And according to her testimony, it's told secondhand because she's died by the time we hear from, from a doctor she and friends she told this to, that he extorted the having those letters at a camp meeting in Connecticut four months before her death to coerce her into having sex. Um, and was and he married? He was married with three children. When the, um, when the trial is happening, his uh, wife is pregnant with their fourth child. Um, so doesn't, I guess, reflect very well on this Avery character that he, first he outed her for her looseness. Yeah. And then he blackmailed her with sex. Yes. And then um, she wishes to, um, to bring this forward. And then the story becomes a question of um, did, did her shame in this circumstance lead her to commit suicide, which is one of the alternate explanations. And that's the major part of the defense's um, arguments in his trial on the murder case. Or was he the murderer who um, uh, was there and, uh, and uh, ended her life? And, and this was the... This was the issue. You call it the crime because it's still not clear entirely whether or not it was a crime. Suicidal murder. And this was the issue that captivated a nation. It doesn't strike me, Bruce, as a particularly unusual story. No, it's not an unusual story. Um, it is so usual that that's part of why it captivates uh, the nation. Uh, it's not the fact that it is something bizarre um, supernatural almost in that that sense um but that people saw in the changing world of their own lives people that looked and seemed like them but they were caught up in um in a tragic uh story that was um worth thinking and this clearly divided the nation some people took his side others took her side yeah. i assume that there were political and evangelical elements to who who picked who and, and, and what the real debate was about. Yeah, absolutely. And even more fascinating than that, they not only um, is there political divisions, but it, it they tended to resort to conspiracy theories for explaining each other. Not the first or the last time on that front either, Bruce. No, not at all. Um, and it is fascinating, but um, that's the arguments made. Um, conspiracy in what sense? What were the, the most outlandish conspiracy theories? Well, those who were the critics of Avery and the Methodists um, argued that they conspired to subvert justice, that they um, they trained and coached and suborned witnesses, maybe even paid for witnesses to uh, to engage in this, that they brought together a host of people to tell a uh, set of false tales, um, that they used whatever resources they had to shield one of their members from from facing a, facing the crime. Um, and keep in mind that this happened exactly at the moment where politically there was a conspiracy politics all over American politics in the 1830s. The anti-Masonic uh, movement and party comes into um, being at that time where people were fearful that a fraternal organization called the Masons had extraordinary power that they could uh, shield their members from, uh, from being uh, uh, held accountable for crimes that they uh, took place. So another Nothing much really changes. Yeah. Says it. Every well, uh, that's the fascinating thing about the about being an historian in the past is that it is caught between um, humans with motivations that seem similar practices and actions that have a long history to them and a past that's very different and strangely, oddly different than us, too. Uh, but I, I, after the break, I want to talk about that more broadly. I want 
for you as a historian to fit this into a, a broader narrative and American seeming uh, obsession with, with quote unquote real crime. But how did this story end? I know that he, he wasn't, fa- he was found not guilty. That was controversial. He had to flee. How did the, the trial end up? There were more than one, there was more than one trial. Is that right? Well, there was a preliminary hearing that was already longer than any trial would normally be. Um, but then it was matched by this extraordinary trial. Um, it was, um, as one uh, trial reporter called it, uh, he called it the most extraordinary of all extraordinary cases. Um, so usually a murder trial would last a day or two. Um, it would be, the evidence would be presided, the lawyers would make their arguments and it would be over. Avery's trial lasted for a month, 30 days. Uh, 250 witnesses are brought uh, to trial. Um, and um, and the competing arguments that are being made over is whether um, the circumstantial evidence indicates that he was there and had the means and motive to do so, uh, even if no eyewitness witnessed an, a murder that happens in the night, uh, in a December night. Um, but um, the opposite arguments are that she was an immoral woman who was likely to um, take her own life. That um, So people connected her own immorality, quote unquote, immorality in terms of relations with men and suicide. Right, exactly. That was thought to be at the time in popular parlance, that would be the natural downfall of a fallen woman. And, and in the end, if he did indeed murder her, he got away with it. Is that right? Well, he got away with it in the sense that he was not convicted. Um the vast majority of the population thought the evidence was compelling. And this is partly too, because this was not just captivated the nation because it was a fascinating story, but it fits into a new kind of communications revolution that's happening at that point in time. And I wanted to get to that. Well, maybe we'll get to that after the break, talk about newspapers. But in your sense, I mean, you've looked at this case very carefully. Do you think he was guilty? Um, I think that... um, that most people's impression seems to be a realistic one. Um, I also understand why. So did she start, did he, was the sense that he murdered her because she sort of counter blackmailed him? Well, she asked for support. Um, She was about to be, uh, to have a child uh, and try to still still work in a factory, which would have been much so difficult. And so she counseled and asked a, a physician who she went to see if she she was pregnant. Um, they didn't have very uh, good means of telling whether she was pregnant. He uh, looked at her tongue and held her held her wrist for her pulse and tried to determine if she was pregnant and, uh, and couldn't decide at that early stage. But she asked for a $300 kind of settlement, I think. Is which what was a lot did. of money. Yeah, that would have been about a year's salary for a working person. Um, so it's not a lot to support a child for the rest of one's life. Um, it, but Avery was only making $150. Uh, they did not pay Methodist ministers very well. Um, so that would have been more than he So had. he lived out his life in exile, essentially. He Yes. Once, once um, and that's a big part of what this book is about, is the aftermath of the trial is as much of the story here as the trial itself. Um there are um, there are mobs um, that um, yeah um, that uh, burn him in effigy and sometimes uh, risk his life. There's uh, he's put on trial in the what's called the court of public opinion uh, in the press, um, and then eventually it's impossible for him to show up and uh, and 
uh, speak in any public setting. He retires to his parents' farm briefly and then moves out to the far western areas, which was Ohio in those uh, days, and lived out his life on a, on a farm. That's a fascinating story. We're going to take a break, Bruce, and then we'll come back and talk about the broader narrative here and how it connects with our current real crime obsessed America. Uh, I want to also note that our show, Keen On, is sponsored by my friends at Liberty, a quarterly journal of culture and politics, an excellent quarterly, a physical one without advertising, um, classic, high quality writing. I'm going to run a short ad for them. And then we'll be back with uh, Bruce Dorsey, author of Murder in a Mill Town, to talk about the broader relevance of his book and this story in the America of the 2020s. We'll be back in a second. Don't go away. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties, it's not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. And you can check out Liberties at libertiesjournal.com. You can also subscribe online. Uh, we are talking with uh, Bruce Dorsey, the author of Murder in a Milltown. Bruce, um, it seems as if America is particularly vulnerable, if that's the right word, to these uh, real crime, hysteria, uh, mob, mob justice and all the rest of it. Is there, you're an expert on pre-Civil War America. Is there something unique about this in America? Or is it true of most societies, certainly most rural societies, where a crime like this would have aroused huge amount of popular and populist emotion? Yeah, I think it's both. Uh, but there is certainly a way in which these, um, especially in the 20th century, there's been this um, moniker that's been attached to famous cases, and they're always repeatedly about 10 years apart, and they're always called the crime of the century. Yeah, um, and we did actually one with uh, Joe, Joe Pompeo um, about a crime um, in, yeah. in, in 1922. He has a best-selling book, Blood and Ink, the scandalous jazz age double murder that hooked America on true crime. I guess you could argue your crime hooked America on true crime. It certainly did. And there aren't really many examples of this before this uh, case. Um, there, every community feels a disruption that happens when something goes wrong um, and that, that murders are disruptive in lies. People tend to kill people that they know, that they have relationships to. It's really rare for people to kill strangers. So therefore murders um, oftentimes result and and indicate there's some kind of something's gone wrong it wrong in a local family community space or place but these kind of notorious crimes are different they they tend to get connected with moments in time when there are changes in communication technologies the way mm. in which uh, the society is changing rapidly and people are suddenly trying to look for explanations um, anthropologists have called this a social drama uh, in which 
Um, people feel as though the normal workings of justice don't seem to be able to explain everything that's happening. Something else is going on here that needs to be explained. So they become fixated with it and captivated by it. And we know this all the way from the Leopold and Loeb and the uh, Lindbergh murder trials, all the way to the O.J. Simpson trial at the end of the 20th century that all get called crimes of the century. Um, but they typically happen, let's take O.J. Simpson, at the birth of cable television. The Leopold and Loeb case is when the yellow journalism and the halftone photographs, when you can start to put photographs onto newsprint for the first time. And Avery's case happens when the first early kind of print revolution is happening in the United States, um, where readership is exploding. Women in particular are, are becoming more literate in the North and reading largely, and that newspapers are spreading. And then um, almost a matter of months before this, the Avery trial, the penny press, the popular tabloid form of newspaper that manufactures news, so to speak, sends a reporter to the crime, um, to the police office to find out what's happening, what what fire or crime has happened. And if they don't have one, maybe to speculate on on one that um, that they imagine might happen. And um, and that's what's happening in the Avery trial. It is not a cause by that technology. It shows that people were excited and willing and eager to Define those Did they, uh, as they read this in the tabloids in this early print revolution. Did people think they were reading fiction or fact, or did they mix the two up? I think they definitely mixed the two up. The, um, the most popular book that emerges at the end of this controversy is a book by a woman author named Catherine Williams called It Has a Boring Title Fall River An Authentic Narrative, but it's really one of the first true crime stories. In, in American history. And uh, it blends together fact and fiction. It's supposed to be journalistic, but sometimes it takes license. It ends with an imagined um, journey that she takes to a camp meeting. Uh, and she imagines all the, um, all the dangers of vice and, uh, and excessive um, uh, sexuality and emotionality that are happening in that uh, emotionalism that is happening at that moment. Um, there's obviously a strong female aspect. You've noted that women were increasingly reading these these tabloids, and um, yeah. uh, Marie Cornell was an independent woman, for better or worse. Is there a, a, a feminist narrative here, too, Bruce, or is that uh, are we too early for that? Um, in terms of thinking about Cornell's life, there's really rarely is, um, meaning that. Um, for all the writing that happens about this case, there are very few women who come forward to defend Maria Cornell. Catherine Williams in this one case, um, one example, that's almost, a, it's about 10 months after the trial's over. When and she, she authored this Fall River. Book. Yes, right, which was republished in the end of the 20th century with a new edition. Um, and um, she's about the only one who does, but she's not taking it from a feminist perspective. Hers is more of a kind of middle-class world that, um, that Maria Cornell would have been a respectable middle-class woman if she hadn't been um, hadn't been overwhelmed by the deceits of designing men like Avery in her life. First, her father's um, abandonment of her, then other men who uh, examples of this. Um, and that's not an unconvincing narrative, is it? No, it's not unconvincing. But she didn't necessarily, ironically, think that Maria should live a life where she was independent, where she should go to those those wild camp meetings in the woods that uh, that she loved so much. Um, Catherine Williams thought they were um, they were dangerous and and so on. Um, and ironically, Catherine Williams was a divorced woman and mother who um, 
supported herself by writing and having it. What were the sexual mores? I know it's a broad question, Bruce, at this time. Did most, I mean, there was no, uh, no, no Kinsey report back then, but do you have the sense that most people had sex outside marriage or was it a fairly, um, a fairly conventional sexual world back in the early 19th century in New England? Right, right around the end of the 18th century, about the time of the American Revolution, it seems that clearly there was an expanding sort of sense of people's access to and um, and the possibility of more, even more um, premarital, extramarital sexuality than there would have been otherwise. So people seem to be having lots of sex. Um, scholars had long ago had discovered that a, at least a third of the brides um, who got married in New England in the late 18th century were pregnant um, at their, since they gave birth within like six months of, uh, uh, or less of um, when they, when they were married. And if they were, if that was the case, there was probably more sex than that going on. Um, And the people were having um, a good deal of it, but what was changing instead, what was revolutionary was the new mores about um, which kinds of, um, approaches and behavior was acceptable and respectable. So it was the assumption and the sort of ideology that emerged that women should be asexual, that they should be passionless, that they should control their sexuality, that they were the ones, men would be driven by their passions and so on, but women, true women would be, um, would not be the case. Um, so that all the women who were um, looking for, trying to figure out the vagaries of how to handle courtships and marriage in these fast moving communities, these new mill towns that were popping up all over the country and the new um, canal towns, railroad depots and so on that people were moving to. Um, They um, found people, fell in love with people, had sex with people, but they, the consequences often of that were shunning and disapproval and um, surveillance and the like. And Bruce, in terms of the communities who broke down for or against Avery and Cornell, do any, does any of your research suggest that more women were sympathetic to, to Cornell, or is is it is it, would it be uh, uh, would it be uh, over presumptuous to assume that women supported Cornell and men supported Avery? I think it would be. Uh, I don't think there is the sort of uh, ability for me to say that since the access t- to those who, who criticized Avery were almost all um, men. The people who supported Cornell were almost all men, but that was because they were doing so in the context of political writing and newspapers and a host of other places where that might emerge. The people who were deeply interested in her story, who listened to her, were her co-workers, her fellow Methodists um, in the factory towns. They um, gave her the means of telling them her story in many ways. And I have a a chapter in the book that's called Bad Stories and talks about why, and another one called Sex Talk, which talks about why did women who um, lived in these towns want to know about, hear about, talk about, but sometimes be the the group that policed the boundaries of what was happening. So they were also afraid that her behavior was reflecting on them and they become the means of using gossip as a means of kind of uh, surveilling and policing her behavior. Bruce, finally, I mentioned that we did a show with Joe Pompeo um, about a, a 1922 murder, his book, uh, Blood and Ink. It's done very well. We've done other 
real crime shows, one with John Law, wrote a book about the murder of his sister, Wish You Were Here. And finally, what, what is this story from very obscure story? I mean, even if it was perhaps well known at the time, what does it tell us about what, what, what should it tell us perhaps as a warning about American obsession with real crime uh, and, and media? I mean, I'm guessing that you assume that the Internet has also triggered these social dramas in different contexts, but not that different. No, again, different, but sometimes uh, um, appearing to be the same. That's the way history works. But I think it does. Um, this case tells us something about the fact that um, something we're familiar with in our own time, that cultural conflict during a time of, of a rapidly changing society when people are moving in different places and spaces, opportunity for work, in this case, even climate change is moving people and, and so on. New media and communication technologies are meaning that people are um, are figuring out what are the boundaries of what they might know of, of, of people's intimate relationships show up the fact that many times um, there's a longer history of this cultural phenomenon where we oftentimes in America too often misconstrue what are personal choices and a combination of that with changing society into contests over, over morals and sometimes religious values. Um, people are making choices about survival, about their own lives, and it's being interpreted as instead um, deeper uh, meanings about the kind of moral frameworks of, of the era. And that that seems to to resonate a lot of times. It's not the first time that's happened in my uh, case, but it's one of the earliest examples. And then we see enough of that in our own day, I think. Um, not only that, it gives us a way of thinking about how does the system think about women uh, in particular, the, the ways in which more often than not, the criminal justice system, trials and so on are more likely to um, to not believe the women who are um, putting forward uh, uh, explanations of sexual exploitation, uh, uh, well, sexual assault or violence and so on. And I think that that is something worth looking into the past and and um, and seeing what be what is different in an era before Me Too or even the rape reform movement movements of the 1990s uh, uh, and forward.